The Movie Mork Podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you'd like to learn more about how to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash quasinim. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all it Ladies and gentlemen, cyborgs and bounty hunters, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Jess Whitmore. And I'm your co-host, Annie Neller. And today, we're going to be cutting into Robert Rodriguez's 2019 CGI spectacular, Battle Angel Alita. So... Context, context, context. Uh, here at the Movie Morgue, we look at movies, we do a bit of critical theory, a little bit of review, and that starts with knowing what this film is and kind of how it came about, and also kind of our own personal connection to it. Um, so I'm going to start off here because I have a passing familiarity with the original source material, because here's the thing, I've never actually watched or read the original manga, but I do know that this is a project that James Cameron has wanted to do forever. Oh, really? And okay. Yeah, no, for years and years and years. Like, since, I think, the Terminator days, even. Whoa, okay, so a while. Yeah, no, Um. but also, like, it is from, like, it was, the original manga was published from, like, I believe 1990 to, like, 1996 or something, and there was an OVA done, and I think, I want to say, like, 92 or 93, covering this kind of first arc. And I know this more specifically because this is the kind of thing that was advertised back in, like, that early 90s, like, OVA, like, late 80s, early 90s anime boom in America, where, you know, you get the VHS tapes with manga, and, you know, you'd have a preview for, like, a bunch of different stuff, and it was sold as this kind of, like, more edgy, more adult vector for direct-to-video sales, basically. So you'd have a lot of these, like, you know, VHS tapes, like, I had Appleseed on VHS, the OVA from, I think, 1988. And so, and I love that, by the way. It was the first cartoon I had that had swearing in it. I loved that shit. Um, so, like, this era of manga and anime is kind of disproportionately represented in the West a little bit. And so, like, I've seen ads for the for that, and I've been familiar with the term. And it's also been somewhat influential. And I think also one of the things that's kind of interesting for me specifically. And by the way, guys, we're going to be spoiling this movie. And also, like, you know, this tw- this fucking 30-year-old story. So, you know. Um, but I remember specifically, and this is a weird bit of context for me. But the iconic ending scene where, what's his face? Hugo, where Hugo falls off the cable. I've seen that scene, specifically because it is in AMV Hell 3, the motion picture. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Done to, um, sh- uh, I believe it's Shaggy. It's uh, Angel. It's like, you know, Shorty, you're my angel. You're my darling. Right. It's dumb. It's dumb. But, like, it's it's a very iconic scene. Yeah. So <laughs> I knew how this ended. That's okay. about all I had. Okay. But, like, I know that, you know, Games Cameron's wanted to, and this is kind of an influential piece. And also, like, I have seen art and pieces of it over the years, and it's a very visually interesting manga. So, yeah, that's my connection, which is to say, not much, really. What about you, Annie? Do you have any kind of context for this? I have no context for this movie whatsoever. This really kind of came out of the blue. When I saw the trailers for it, I have to admit, I was not particularly interested in this movie. Uh, not for any, like, personal objection-y reasons or anything like that. It just didn't really catch my eye. And um, I knew that it was going to have a really pretty good cast. And, you know, for that reason, I was kind of like, okay, you know, like this might be worth seeing, but... I had no idea that there was this manga series behind it. My partner had actually read that, and he came along with me to my screening. So um, he was talking with me afterwards about sort of like some of the similarities and differences between the original text and the movie. How and, did he feel uh, about that? Yeah. He felt like it actually was faithful in some parts to the manga. Um, he didn't mention the bit about the cat name. But um, for the most part, he did say that there was a lot of the original storyline that was intact, but he also saw some things that they had changed. So he didn't seem to feel uncomfortable with it. He said he kind of liked it. So 
Yeah, uh, and to clarify, because that was in the discussion we had in the preamble, when we're talking about the cat name, uh, in the movie, uh, Christoph Waltz, as Dr. Ido, names Alita after his dead daughter. In the original uh, manga, she's named after his recently deceased cat, at least according to Wikipedia. Because that's one of those things where I was like, ah, you know what, seems like a bit of a questionable choice, seems like kind of fucked up, bro, but apparently, I, I, I was just assuming it was part of the original manga they were ad- adapting. That being said, let's kind of get into the review portion and discuss, like, how we feel this film kind of holds up before we start, you know, tearing into the good parts. So, Annie, what do you think of Battle Angel Alita? It's Alita Battle Angel, actually, <laughs> just, you know. Oh, whatever. Um, yeah, <laughs> Battle Angel Alita would have been, I think, an okay title, though, too. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give this, I think, a B to a B-. minus. Um, I think that some of the screenwriting for this is not particularly great, but I do have to say that I enjoyed a lot of this movie. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the spectacle of it. I really enjoyed the bar fight scene. I thought that was very well shot. Um, it was cool to see Robert Rodriguez directing a movie after, you know, Spy Kids, I think was the last thing he did. Um, but in general, I think that the screenplay itself could have used another, um, go around, could have used another pass just to kind of maybe give another look at some of the dialogue because that didn't feel so great to me. And I have to admit, I do think that the screenplay drags in parts as well. Despite that, this is a movie that I enjoyed, and I'd say it's at least a solid B. But how about you, Jess? Um, well, first of all, Rodriguez has still been getting work. I don't know what you where you've been. Did Sin City I, a day I don't kill know. For? I live under a rock. He I did thought the Machete? last thing he directed was... Oh, okay. Like, he's done a couple things. Um... And I'm actually going to, I think this is probably one of the bigger letter grade differences we've had, but I'm actually going to give this one like the A minus A range. Oh, wait, he directed Sin City too? Yeah. How? Yeah. Maybe I have been living under a rock. Okay. Well, yeah. you, 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 you get to jump up my ass about character actors. I get to jump out <laughs> against your ass for the CGI heavy green screen king. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Even trade, even trade. But um, the thing here is, I think there are absolutely structural problems with this movie. Um, Particularly, I think the dialogue is very weak. You should have gotten, like, I hate to say it, but a Whedon or a Tarantino to tighten it up. But um, that being said, the overall structure really works for me, and it is absolutely inventive and striking in a visual and action sense and that kind of core conceit i think at least for me makes this something novel and something new this is probably one of the most successful anime adaptations i've ever seen and it really works for me and those kind of structural problems and also i think some of the kind of story and script elements do feel very dated you know it's very it's it's a 90s it's a 90s movie but made with this really modern, really sharp thing. And I think the best way I can describe it, though, is this is Robert Rodriguez doing a Wachowski Twins tribute album. Okay, yeah. And I'm fucking there for that. Yeah. So, yeah. Because, like, my my original thought was, like, eh, A bordering on A minus, A minus bordering on A, and I think I'm going to come down on the A side because it works and there were definitely challenges to adapting this from what I've read and from what I know of this of the franchise and honestly I just I want this movie to do well I I'm really I really enjoyed it and I'm kind of sad that the box office isn't really embracing it oh I also think that people should go and see this like Because I'm giving it a B because I do think that there are structural problems with the film, which is not to say that that has necessarily any impact on my enjoyment of the film, because I think it's really worthwhile. And there's a lot of very good performances in this. The actual city layout itself is gorgeous. Like, there is a reason to go see Alita Battle Angel. I am, I have to admit, a little bit shocked that this isn't taking off as much as it is, but... I don't know. It's 
I think it only made like what twelve million dollars last week or something. I don't know the specifics week to week. All I know is it's two weeks out and it's only got sixty five million domestic. We're not getting that sequel, which makes me sad because I was a little trepidatious about this film. But like it, one of the reasons I did go to see it, and I kind of hope it has a bit of a long tail, maybe, is the the kind of anime community were saying like, oh my god, we finally got a good adaptation. Like, the critical response in, like, nerd culture circles have been very positive. Oh, okay. That's which, really awesome. Yeah, which is one of the reasons, like, I kind of started getting excited to go see it. So let's kind of break things down a little bit now and go into analysis. And the first thing I want to talk about is the action, because holy shit, this movie lives and dies by its action, and its action is so very, very good. Yes. And I also like how visceral it is. Thank yeah, you for that. That's, that's that's an achievement. And this is where I feel like you get kind of a bit of that. And like this was, okay, I'm, I'm going to cut away for a moment here, is just the opening kind of shots of, you know, the stuff falling from the Great Flying City, the kind of gold in the sunlight, golden hour, and the kind of like dimming patina of like artifice and age, like the, the, the dying gilded city. Like that was like, to me, immediately, that was my first thought when this movie opened was Wachowskis by Robert Rodriguez. Because, like, you have a bit of that Jupiter ascending. You've got a lot of that kind of, like, Matrix, like, Zion, like, de decayed city kind of vibe to it. And it just kind of rode that vibe the entire time for me. Um, but the action does maintain that aesthetic. And one of the things, like, that I think really achieved very well is the heavy use of CGI. And the mm -hmm. way that they did all the compositing, and especially, I think it's actually kind of brilliant that they made Alita this um, entirely or heavy CGI character, is the only reason she's allowed to function in the way she does, because she does not move like a human being. And so, like, I think that's part of the buy-in that you need for these action scenes to work, because you, you see a lot of this kind of, like, Snyder-style, like, slow motion, where, like, you're going in and out of slow motion. Look, Snyder has yeah. his issues, but he was very good at that trick. Snyder is good at aesthetics. Don't knock it. But it, it's when it comes to the content that he struggles a bit. But Just a yeah. tiny bit. So, you come from that is like... And, you can, and I actually do love the kind of restraint that it takes to get there. Because the first hint that you get is when the centurion almost steps on the dog. And she like instinctively combat roles in there and i love that because like there is a sense of like like militarism like there's a martial sense to her movement there that kind of comes out of nowhere and so having her able to be a part of this cgi environment with all these other big cgi creatures and characters absolutely sells the aesthetic of this film for me What's your favorite fight, Annie? This is what I want to know. Because there's a lot of fights. It's the bar fight. You like it's the bar the fight? It's the bar fight. I love the bar fight. I think the bar fight is friggin' great. Um, I think it's a really, really great sequence. There's a lot of just frenetic energy to it. There's a lot of really wonderful character moments. And there was one, one person that I wanted to call out for being awesome in general. And that is Ed Scrain as Zapin. I think that's right. Is it Zapin? Probably. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, he Zipan, did a fantastic, Zapan. all right, he did a great job, uh, he was just freaking ridiculous and over the top and obsessed with his own looks, but also very intimidating and kind of scary and just did a really good job and it was cool to see all the other, I think they're called hunter warriors in the bar together, they're all sort of, there's a mercenary vibe to that scene that I really, really enjoyed and I just think that it shot very, very well. How about you? What was your favorite fight? Uh, I think for me, it's the sewer fight with Gravishka. Oh, yeah. Because I, I think... Ugh, that's good stuff. Like, because there's a lot of groundwork that's laid out beforehand. You know, you've got the grinder cutters or whatever. You've got the earlier fight with Gravishka where she kicks off his shoulder. And so you see a lot of the same movements mirrored. And there's a lot of setup and it pays off a lot of things. But also, you have that fantastic uh, scene where she she punches him in the face with only one arm. Oh, like, yeah. It is so, like, kinetic. And, like, it's implausible, and it's dumb, and it's silly. But also, 
in the moment while watching the film, I believe that she can hit him that hard. And also, it's one of my favorite examples of a Furic victory, because it's showing a level of self-sacrifice and, like, um, ablation of the your physical body that you cannot show in traditional filmmaking, you know? At most, you could maybe get away with, like, you know, losing an arm to strike in a blow. Like, there are limits to what you can do with the human body. So to see her, like, lose everything, to get sliced to ribbons like that, and still be able to, like, muster up this superhuman energy and focus and precision to land that final decisive blow, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And plus, Gruishka is such a fun visual design. He's big, he's huge. And actually, that's one of the things about the visual design in this that I really love, is how everything is hollow. Mm-hmm. Is, yep. That's one of the first things you see when Alita actually awakens in her body, is you can actually see through her armpit to the gears inside and also a little bit behind her. And this is such a commonality in so many of the character designs. Gruvishka, in particular, just has holes in him. You can see through him. Particularly in his first incarnation, where his, like, sections of his pectorals are just, like, elevated and separated from each other. You could, like, throw a knife through him and not hit him. And that's, I think, an important thing that sells the aesthetic of this film for me because one of the things that you see in a lot of design like this is, you know, you're masking over live-action footage or, you know, I'm sorry, um... Or, you know, you're designing these very solid, blocky models. And so you want to create this sense of solidity. You want to create this sense of weight. And there is a tendency, I think, in a lot of these designs to make these very big, opaque things. And so to make something delicate, and even something like something as big and scary as Gravishka, to have, like, these gaps and these holes makes them feel, I think, to me at least, and I, I guess it also might be one of those things where I'm an animator and I'm impressed by different things. It's very deft. And it makes it feel much more believable to me. And I actually would love to see this again in 3D. Because one of the things about that is it does create that sense of depth for me. Because I'm seeing the surface. And I'm seeing beyond the surface to the internal. And beyond the internal, I can see a little bit past that to the background. So, like, seeing that with proper depth, I think, would be incredible. Mm, that's a really good point. I really oh, like God, the, the detail action. on her first body. Oh no, it's wonderful. It's it's doll-like. It's like mother of pearl and like opal inlays and stuff. It's just it, absolutely it's, gorgeous. And it has it's this patterned wonderful... like it gives her this kind of car like hand carved feel to her body and there's just something so beautiful about that scene where she wakes up and she's, you know, like looking at her fingers and, you know, kind of like stretching them and moving them back and forth and, and coming to consciousness. It I, I think love that she the... falls down. Yeah, that was really, that was cute. Yeah, actually, I want to I wanna check with you here. And I, I think we're kind of breaking apart from the mechanical to start looking at theme a bit here. And I'm okay with that. Because, like, they inform each other. But I feel like there was a theme that was built in that kind of got dropped halfway through. Is, I, because I, I wasn't familiar with the source material. So I didn't know about Panzerkunst or anything. Because what I thought was actually brilliant up until they kind of revealed how things were actually going was her eyes. Because that was the big thing is like, people were like, oh, this is really off-putting. Why'd they give her the big anime eyes? And um, one of the things that I seem to see, especially in the, um, the motorball tryouts, the scrimmage, is it seems like she was doing that thing where she's doing that um, Taskmaster thing where she's looking at people's moves and absorbing them. And I thought that was, like, this really brilliant, like, visual way of signifying. It seems like that was kind of dropped halfway through, but I feel like that was a visual theme they were playing with initially. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I I kind of picked up on that, sort of, and now that you phrased it like that, I, I think I understand it a bit better. I do know that James Cameron talked about Alita's eyes specifically and said, you know, these are kind of like the windows into her soul and they're huge eyes and we made them that way for a specific reason. So I I definitely know that there was probably an effort there to explain why they're so large and what you've just said kind of makes sense. But yeah, it kind of gets dropped off halfway through. They have a lot of story that they have to cover in this film, and I think that's part of why that's happening. Yeah, I mean, that is fair. Also, the OVA was in 1993. Just 
So I was close. I was oh, very close. Dang. Um, but uh, one thing that I want to, I want to clarify also, um, that my knowledge is very, and I specifically did not watch the original OVA or read the manga because I wanted to see how this stood on its own. And I think it does stand quite well. Um, I I, I, do I felt feel... like it did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, structurally, though, I do have some issues with kind of the way the stakes kind of elevate and fall. Yeah, because I can see that. specifically, like having like motorball is kind of a weird thing. In the it's still like a death race, and they're still trying to kill her. But it's also, like, it's this big climactic thing. And the immediately following that, you have the emotional climax, which is a much less action-oriented kind of thing, with the defense ring falling down the cable. So, like, it's kind of a bit of a weird pacing issue. Is there so many scenes, and I think... This is something that works better in this kind of longer serial format where you're moving on from one piece, one action set piece to the next action set piece to the next action set piece. But when it's in this limited feature length format like that, I do feel like it is just the slightest bit awkward. Yeah. Yeah, a bit. But let's go, let's go back to the body for a second. Because one of the things I really like about that kind of, like, pearlescent doll-like body... Like, it, it very much to me evokes... It's doll-like. I think that's fair to yeah. say. Oh, yeah. It no, very much to me on. invokes, like, something like Rose and Maiden or um, the doll from, mm. from Bloodborne. And yes, I think that's a great definitely. contrast because it makes her feel very fragile. Yeah. And it kind of sells, like, how incredible it is the way she moves, the way she behaves, and the way she fights... But also, it does, I think, kind of sell that her actions are bigger than herself. And that she is pushing beyond the limits of what that body is capable of. And I think that's kind of the message I get out of the Gruishka fight. It's not really that he outsmarts her or that he outplays her. It's that, and like I kind of hate this thematically. It's that the body was too weak. It's that she wasn't powerful enough for what she was trying to do. But also, but also, like, it makes that, like I said, that spiraling, jumping, one-arm punch so good because, like, she's breaking her body to do this incredible thing. But this also plays into, I think, something else that I think is very important to this film that I don't think I've really heard anyone talk about is... How young Alita feels. Yeah, she feels um, really young in the beginning of this movie. Yeah, and there is this kind of transition throughout the film, and I really like the arc where she does grow mature. I think there's like some weirdness going on with how she's sexualized. And she, she goes... Ba basically, we follow her entire journey from child to adolescent to adult to like battle-weary battle warrior throughout the entire film. And it's weird because you get stuff like, you know, her romance with uh, Hugo, which varies from being like, wow, this is like this really sensual kiss, like, you know, this whole thing about her new body and so on. But also you get like that really kind of like sweet childhood romance in the streets as well earlier. Uh, yeah, teen romance. Uh-huh. Yeah. So like, I don't know, like... It's so weird because it works really well, but it's also kind of disconcerting because I think when we see this, this, I think in our, in my mind at least, this doesn't register as being an animated film. This is a CGI enhanced, like, you know, action adventure movie, but it it's not like an animated adaptation, right? That's kind of how this plays in my mind. So despite all the CGI distortions that they've done to her face... You know, this is still looking at Rosa Salazar as Alita. We're still seeing one actress with one face. And so to see her go through these different roles, I can accept her in any one role. But seeing the transition throws, I think, the other roles that she plays into this kind of bad contrast. It's like, yeah, she plays, like, the innocent child like Alita very well. But then, she, like, she plays, like, the battle-hardened warrior Alita later. And that, like, there's a distance because, like, 
it, her design doesn't update that much. Her face is the same face. So I think there's this disconnect where I'm like, oh, look at this sweet childhood. She's riding on the back of the motorcycle. They're like teenagers in love. It's so sweet. And then you go later to this like, can you feel me touching you? There's like this really sensual kiss in the rain. And it's like, I kind of feel like you're sexualizing a child. And it's weird. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I don't know, like, what phase do you, do you like, really appreciate her performance? Because, like, I'm curious, like, where it registers. Because I feel like in films like this, generally speaking, you do not have this much of a character arc. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's partly because they've kind of, like, her body is essentially a metaphor for her journey as a character, for her process of maturation, for her coming into her own, and also remembering a lot of her previous life so yeah I mean it is it's weird and it's uncomfortable and it does feel very like teenagery at the beginning despite the fact that she's what 300 years old technically? well that's the thing is emotionally she doesn't have a memory and she is you know wondrous about the world and like the transition is very yeah. quick and very subtle because she yep. starts off chi- childish absolutely childish is, you know, oranges oh, are yeah, my favorite orange. food. Oh, yeah. you should eat, you should probably eat this without the peel. And then it's just like, oh my God, chocolate. Chocolate is my favorite thing. Can, do, can we have chocolate for dinner? And like, that's childlike. That's not teenage. That's childlike. And that's, I think, where it gets weird because yeah. like, the, the transition, I, I think mainly it's because I don't think there's really any delineation in time. And I think this is where I'm getting tripped up here is her childhood and her adolescence are not distinct from each other. Yes. Yeah, and I think that is a definite problem. Yeah, because her adolescence and her adulthood are defined by she loses her innocence kind of in the fight against Gravishka, she loses her body, she's reunited with her true form and you know she and her body physically develops. Like you and that seems a little weird, but whatever, I'll let that slide for now. <laughs> Um, because the it, more it, it that makes we're the... talking about this, the more problematic I'm finding it. But yeah, no, I see what you're saying. So, like, you have that clear delineation, but there's no time skip. There's no real showing of when she goes from "I love chocolate" to "I like boys." <laughs> so it does just kind of feel a little bit like Hugo's, like vaguely predatory. Yeah, I can see. And that. like, I hate what I'm saying, and Annie, you probably should cut this. Yeah, we can't keep that. No, okay. No. But you see what I'm saying, though, is like... I, I did. I did see what you were saying. <laughs> yes. Uh, <sighs> One of the things that I thought we could also talk about were some of the performances in this movie, because I this is just such a fantastic cast that they've put together for this movie. Um I I don't know Rosa Salazar very well as an actress. I don't know that I've seen her in a lot of stuff, but she's good. She's very good. Um, and I think her performance as Alita is very multifaceted. What did you think? Um, no, I, I like her a lot in this. And, like, that's one thing that I think is very difficult to capture uh, is that that childhood innocence because one of the things that I think kind of comes out of that is a lot of how we present ourselves and how we interact with the world is very affected and it's very kind of set and patterned and to be I think completely open like that to be you know naive like that is a very difficult acting experience because I I like when it requires like, a I, lot I don't of emotional vulnerability done, but like, as acting an actor. like that feels very unnatural like you know i do like D and stuff like that and it always like there's a kind of feedback loop in your mind where you're look, trying to do something that and you're just like this is silly uh i'm being ridiculous like i'm pushing this too far and i don't really sense that hesitation no which i think really sells it because like if you or i were to go like oh my god this is chocolate like already that sounds awful 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you wrote the lines a different way, you could probably get a similar message across. But um, given the lines that Rosa Salazar is provided with in this film, I think she does a really spectacular job playing this character. Actually, I will say this. I think she's the only one who overcomes the awkwardness of her dialogue. Yep. Because, like, she's very charismatic. She's selling this, and her performance in this is phenomenal. Whereas other people, like, Christoph Waltz in particular, I think, like, he has a lot of lines that are just kind of badly written, and, like, he stumbles over them just a little bit. Because, like, it's hard to say shit like, I became a, that's when I became a hunter-killer to hunt him down, and it never brought me peace. You know? I mean, yeah. Like, I think he gave us swiss um watchmaker dad realness in this movie i think that was his character motivation and um that was definitely very awkward because there was a lot of stumbling over his lines i I think some of the stuff that they wrote for him doesn't work with his mode of speaking which is one of the strengths of quentin tarantino as a screenwriter he knew how to write for uh, christoph waltz I didn't necessarily sense that here, so. I don't think they really knew how to write for a lot of people. Like, um, Gruishka, for example, has these really awkward dialogue where it's like, Gruishka will remember this! It's, like, there's a lot of characters with a lot of really weird... that Like, Zapan has, like, you know, that's Hunter Law! Or shit like that. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. Th- there's a lot of really awkward dialogue. Um, I will also want to commend, though... Um, Marshal Ali, uh, because in particular, like his, his his performance is great, and he's playing like like you said, he's playing a heel, and it's kind of like a little typecasty, a little not like there's some it's not great very, optics around it. Yeah, and it's very campy. He's giving us some like late '90s Wesley Snipes vibes, and I'm oh my kind god, of into it. Yes, holy shit, that just popped into my brain when you said, "Oh my god, yes." I'm like, getting Demolition I, Man now. Oh. But can you imagine him as Blade if they, like, if you got somebody to do actual writing, like real writing for Mahershala Ali, who's had some bad luck of late with some of the projects that he's been involved in, um, if you had somebody who could write for him, who could write a Blade series, I think he would be just absolutely fantastic. Oh, God, he would be that. a fantastic Blade. Because um, one of the things he does so well is that whole, like, you know, sunglasses stoicism in the background like he is a very good screen presence even if he's occupying a very small portion of the screen now that being said one thing that he does fantastically and this is just a beat is i love his death because he's being commanded by uh what's his name nova Uh, nova yeah he's being controlled by nova and he is laughing at his own death and he sells that holy crap like i like genuinely like his kind of like casual mirth in the face of his own death was like unsettling because like he really sold the physicality of falling down of losing strength in his body but he also just had that very light like almost not quite a smile is just he's showing teeth he's talking and like he sells this idea that he's making an effort that his body can no longer handle and you actually see like that smile and that amusement that smirk that he has that ego slowly go out of him as he continues the dialogue because he can't maintain the necessary like muscle function to keep that up it's just it becomes the dialogue becomes more and more functional as the performance kind of falls away with his death it's such a good piece it's a it's a really good sequence. It reminds me a lot of his performance as Cottonmouth, where he's doing all these different kinds of really unsettling things as a villain. Um, and I don't just mean actions. I mean, like, making acting choices that are in themselves kind of, like, distinctly unsettling. He's very, very good at that. And that comes out here. You know, like, it's kind of a bit part. It's kind of a bit heel role. Um, and he's literally a puppet as a character. But what with what he's given, I think he does an excellent job. Yeah, no, he does. Um, back to the main cast. Um, let's stay away from Hugo for just a moment. Because <laughs> okay. we've got some stuff to talk about there. 
But yeah. uh, it's screen. How, how do I say that? Screen? Screen? I think it's screen. Screen? We're sorry. Screen. We're sorry, bro. We're sorry. Sorry, Ed. Um, but as a pun, he's fantastic. He really sells that, like, sociopathic, like, Jude Law style, like, proper, prim, but with a very hard edge to it. And I love it. Like, I'm not familiar with his work at all, but, like, he really sold me in this. And I loved him as the, uh... Oh, he was Ajax? Yeah, he was in Deadpool. Yeah, no, he's great. I love him. I want to see more of his work. But, um, in particular, also, like, and I know this isn't necessarily his performance, but I think his performance enhances it, is I love the ornateness of his physical design. Uh, yeah, where he turns to the side and you see him in profile and you can see all the gears inside of his head. It's amazing. The design of these characters is just mind-blowing. Yeah. I think what really sold me, though, was when they introduced the hunter killers or hunter, the bounty hunter guys. <laughs> Yeah, it, the, like um, this. This is one of those things. Like that's one of those things. Like it's hard for me to remember what they're called because it's really silly and it's very much like English. So like it's very difficult to take people seriously when they're saying lines like you know that's when I became a hunter stalker or whatever they're called. You know we have words for this, but um, like even if they had just called them hunters, I think that would have worked for me. Yeah. Um. Because like I, I think one of the, this is one of those things where it, it it feels like an adaptation thing, where if you or I were writing this, we would look at the kind of realities of how we use this slang, and we would say like, okay, uh, you know, you'd want it to be functional, you want it to be short, you want it to be like a, a device of communication, so you'd want to like find the word that most describes, so like hunter or stalker, right? And that can feel natural if you integrate into the world, like you know, you go you go play stalkers like. Hey there, stalker. Like, you know, it, it feels like a natural part of the world. But when you're doing this with a language that you're not native to, there's a certain level of exoticism and complexity that it's hard to nuance out, I think. So well, you I think get a lot of. It's difficult like, to translate it in a way that's going to have a similar meaning. Yeah. And this is just something I've seen, like, in both directions. And I'm not going to name specific examples here because I can't think of them off the top of my head and the reference. But, like, I feel like. When you have a specific name for a thing, if it's in a different language, you will tend to go for a longer version of whatever word. Like, you don't, you can't condense the phrase as much. Okay. So, yeah. in, you know, Japanese, you get, you know, hunter-killer or hunter-stalker, or whatever they're called. Whereas, if you or I were doing it, it would be a functional word, and we would cut it down. But I've also seen it the other way, where, like, we've had, like, you know, Japanese or Korean terms thrown in there as, like, part of, like... And there's a degree of Orientalism that comes with like, that kind of thing in film, but where, like, it'll be, like, a longer name for something. But because it's not part of the natural language that you're speaking, it doesn't feel discordant. And I think that's kind of what we're happening, what's, what we're seeing happen here. So let's talk about Keenan... Sorry, Kean Johnson. Let's talk about Hugo. <laughs> okay. He's kind of a fuckboy. And Annie, you don't really like him in this, but I think he's perfectly cast for this because, like, that is the role is he's a fuckboy. I know that he's perfectly cast in this. I'm just, I don't know. Like, I understand that it's supposed to be kind of like a teen romance and he's sort of like her first boyfriend after she wakes up from essentially being dismembered and whatnot. So she's not maybe going to make the best choices, but he just... He's Hugo just seems really kind of bland to me and like, you know, a guy on a motorcycle who has a hair swoop. And that's I don't know. I'm not into that. That's the story that they were telling. That's fine. I think Kean Johnson does a good job as the in the acting part, but See, this is this is like why I think he's perfect. Because he doesn't belong in this movie. You look at how much CGI is involved in everything. You look at how meticulous the costuming is. All right? This guy, Hugo, does not belong in this movie. This guy belongs in, like, a Christian movie about abortion. But you can see it. It's like, you know, he can show up with the, at the high school on this, like, stupid fucking motorcycle. It's like, you know, he... 
And he, but like, he's not the bad one who wants to, you to get the abortion. Like, he's the one who's like, Jess, no, no, I'll be a you're talking about Footloose. Let's be honest. Okay, yeah, he belongs in fucking Footloose, okay? be in Footloose. You would watch that. He would be perfect in Footloose. Okay, I can see this now. And so, like, in that, like, and beyond that also, we're looking at this, and also, there's some not great stuff where he, as the leader of the gang, who's kind of a shitty white boy, comes in and tells the Tanji, you know, yes. the ambiguously, yes. bl- like, biracial, I guess, is how I read that. Multiracial, yeah. Um, I'm not familiar with George Ludenberg Jr., so I'm oh, not going to. Oh, yes, you are. He was in Bumblebee. Oh, shit! He's her boyfriend from Bumblebee. Ah! I'm not recognizing people. I'm bad at this. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging up my podcast credentials now. But, um, like, you know, he comes in, you know, tells him, like, okay, we're quitting, we're done, and gets him killed. Like, that's not a great look. Uh, not a great look. No. No, the whole way that he treats Tanji is not particularly awesome. No. But, uh, that being said, I think one element that we're kind of missing here is his physical transformation. Is he's a fuckboy? He's your bland high school boyfriend? you know, presented with, like, really bland cinematography. Like, you can see him at 60 frames a second. I don't know why. I can just see, like, a slope, like, like a Dawson Creek pan around him. <laughs> you can see it. You can see it in your mind, and it works perfectly for him. Yeah. Like, for the performance and for his face. And, like, this is why I think he's perfect for this role. But once he gets past that, and once he dies, I guess, for his sins, like, they, they make every sacrifice to keep him alive. They let him die in the eyes of the law, and they remake him as the cyborg. Yeah. Like, he actually has this great character design where he's made of scrap parts and nothing matches. And there is this kind of sense of discomfort that he has with his body and with his place in the world. And there's a sadness that actually comes out of his performance in the second half of this movie where, like, he his time is limited and he doesn't belong in this world anymore. Mm, okay. Because, like, there's... Okay. I, I do think there is this transformation. When you see him... In the church, and like he actually does, I think gives this really good performance in like the church chase sequence when Zaban is coming after him, and he's scared and he's afraid, and he's trying to make amends to Alita, and he's sad and he's you know fucked up about it. I think there is some good performance in there, but once he gets past that threshold and becomes a cyborg, he is doomed, and there is I think a sense of tragedy about his face, which I think really works for the role. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think I was kind of thinking about him prior to um, him losing his body and getting a new one that's automated. That's a very good point. Yeah, and I I think that kind of comes from this bias of we're looking at this as a live-action movie. So he's the only character that we see both as a full-bodied non-CGI human and as a cyborg. And I think in our minds we kind of separate those two parts because he is part of the emotional core of this movie. Is His death is the most significant emotional beat in the story and it actually is kind of heartbreaking like i think it's a really well done scene that is the scene that i have seen that i knew was coming and like even knowing all the specifics of how it was going to happen like and they actually recreated it very faithfully like the whole like sword in the side of the cable hanging onto him with one arm as he's falling apart like that really matches up to what i remember of that scene and even knowing it was coming i still felt it was quite impactful And, like, yeah, the dialogue there's a little clunky. It's like, just, you know, I love you. Good. Ah. He falls At least the it clouds. wasn't like, I know. Oh, God. <laughs> but, uh. And plus, he's, he's bouncing off Rosa Salazar there, who is doing this great, you know, pained expression, both emotionally and physically. Like, she's fighting so hard to save him, and she can't. I love that. Like, I really think it works. I think he was perfect for the role. And I think... Like, looking only at the first half of his performance, which I don't think is, I think is understandable. I don't think really does service to the kind of performance he gave in this film. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point that you've raised, actually. We should probably talk about um, Nova and who he is. And uh, I'm having trouble actually finding him in the cast list. I, I know that I told you... So, um, Ed Norton is playing Nova, and I haven't really seen Ed Norton in something in a while, so it was just kind of interesting to see him here again. Um, how did you feel about Ed Norton's sort of, like, tiny performance as Nova? 
yeah, he's credited. He's not credited as uh, Hugo, and I actually did not recognize him in the film. Um, I, it's kind of weird to describe him as a character because he's more of a presence than a character, and I'm actually I'm really unhappy that they took off his glasses at the end because kind of I feel like the facelessness sold him as yeah. like this kind of inhuman threat. Right? And so taking off his eyes and giving like that knowing little wink and like the sparkle in his eye I think humanizes him too much because it's it's not a performance it's a cameo really right whereas yeah. the performance is the script and the performances that other characters do like Gruishka is great as Nova like the kind of modal switch that he does I think um you know Vector and Nova are more similar whereas yeah. Gruishka is like this big brute but then he becomes Nova and he's cold and calculated and I love that he's intimidating and powerful and in control when he's being literally hoisted by a crane and he's just a head and a spine. I love the amount of control he has. Like, fucking just... Jackie Earl Haley is great. I told and, ya. Yeah, no, and I love how many performances are this strong coming out from behind these heavily CGI characters. Yes, Right. Like, that's actually something that I think really sells uh, Ed Screen as Zapan, is yeah. his face feels disconnected from his body. He feels like a specter. Like, he doesn't look real. And that kind of sells, I think, this idea where he's, like, obsessed with his face and he's very vain. And, you know, he gets cut off. He's like, my face, my face. But, like, the fact that his face is, like, picture perfect, but it's floating in a void and it's not connected to anything, I think really sells this unreality and it makes him it makes him work for me like it's it's creepy it's like um he's ornamental to himself there's not much of a person left in there is he's an affectation he's a fashion statement and i love that he's the first bounty hunter we're introduced to also because his design and going back to this because i think i wanted to say this earlier but i forgot is the kind of mixture of like almost religious imagery and like he's like a statue as much as he is a robot. Just aesthetically, his design is beautiful. The way his back is centered around this kind of circular, like, you know, like, tablet with, a like, a mask on it. I, can't, I don't know there's any specific imagery, and I'm not it going to try It is specific imagery. <laughs> Actually, um, it's the Aztec sunstone. That's okay. kind of what the design is coming from, which I, I think is really sort of fascinating because it's just such a beautiful image. Like, they've clearly modified it and manipulated it a bit to fit onto his back and stuff, but that's clearly what they're drawing on aesthetically. That is kind of where I think I, I was love. going with it. I just didn't want to specifically name anything because I didn't have the yeah. visual reference. And also, I didn't want to, like, make declarative statements about it because I didn't... I only saw this film once. And... I don't have like a lot of like it was it was evocative of that yeah. and I just didn't have necessarily I think the vocabulary or the surety of it to make that yeah statement. sure sure yeah I, I really like that about his back when he turned around I was like ooh, I like this mm, it's as an good. art historian I like this space I feel comfortable here oh can I just say how much I love Jeff Fay as McTeague the hound master <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's a bit role, but it's such a fun bit role. And it's really well integrated. I'm sad that they killed the dog. I really am. I am, too. I know that that dog was probably treated very well on set, but I really enjoyed McTeague's line. He just wasn't a dog person. <laughs> it's such a bad <laughs> line, but it works. It's so terrible. And I just really enjoyed it. Gesundheit. Uh, I'm also, I want to call up another role, which I really like, and it's just a bit role, is Eliza Gonzalez as Nisinia, or Nisiana. Um, she is the red-hooded assassin from the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And I love her design, but I also love her performance in it. Um, like, the mixture of, first of all, like, I was immediately struck by that red coat. I love that red coat. I would love to have that red coat. But... Um, the lipstick and the kind of, like, very made-up, very elegant face that she has put on for this. And her very, like, she's got, like, that cackling witch energy, you know? It's like she's very in control. She's a bit of a dominatrix. But what is great, though, is when she starts fighting, as the fight collapses, she gets feral. 
like the way she moves and again like the movement isn't necessarily her performance so much as the animation but also like she her face plays into it and she has that similar thing that zaban has where her face is human and therefore strange upon the body of this cyborg yeah the thing that i also really liked about um isa gonzalez's performance too is that um well, it's not so much about a performance as it is about the character design itself. Like, I really like that, you know, she has these sort of fleshy, beautiful legs and this beautiful face. And then she's got these scythe-like arms that are just blades. There's something so unsettling about the design for her character. I really, really like that moment where she takes off her hood and you realize, like, oh, snap, she's got sword arms. Stuff's about to get real. Yeah, I love it's a great moment. the sheer variety of character design. And this is something that, like, if you tried to do this with, you know, actors, quote-unquote, like, it just wouldn't work. Because you look at, um, particularly, like, I, and I'm going to distinguish Gravishka in his first appearance versus later on when he's much more monstrous. But when he's start, first saying there, he's basically a square. He's like a Shomei character. Yeah. Like, you know I love my Shomei references. But, like, he really I, does I because do. he's so square and so blocky. Especially with that, with that like big cloak on, and he kind of loses that as he engages in the fight. But like as he's standing there as a presence, he has that, and I love that. And there's this variety in body shape and form that is just fun and inventive. Like I like that one guy in the race who's a car, you know, the guy with the goggles. <laughs> he's a car. Yeah. yeah. And there's another guy who's got like these like these like studio ghibli like um fl- the flying fortress or the flying island whatever it was called the kind of segmented wing arms with the buzz saws on them or that one girl with the six arms i think that's screwhead there's there's just so many fun designs and the way that they move together is wonderful and there's so much like it's actually it's really weird how gory this is because it, it's all robots and you don't really register it the same way but there are so many heads getting ripped off and limbs getting cut. And, like, you kind of forget It feels that. visceral, too. Like, it feels very real. Like, there is blood squirting in places where there should be blood squirting. The violence in this movie feels like it has weight behind it. It doesn't feel like it's necessarily backing away from or looking away from the violence when it happens. And I did appreciate that. I just want to check. Do we know what rating this was? Mm, she says the F word once, but I think you can do that in a PG-13 movie. Sorry, maybe edit around this a little bit because I want to find out the rating. Yeah, it is I... PG-13. This is PG-13? This doesn't feel PG-13. It feels a little closer to an R, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like a soft R. It feels like R. it's at the edge of PG-13. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's kind of the conceit to it, because that's one thing I remember, not, well, not that I remember, that I kind of get the inference, and, like, some friends on Twitter have also been talking about, like, recommending the original manga, is, like, there's this sense that it is gory and it is violent, and, like, I guess it's kind of aestheticized out in this, is, like, we have the violence, but we don't necessarily register it. But also, like, there's so much, like, break, like when you see fucking, um, what's her name? When you see Chirin's brain and hands in that box. Oh, yeah. Or when you that see Zapan's face. Is... Yeah. Uh... And that's kind of just never resolved. I kind of hate that. Yeah. Because also, like, I love Jennifer Connelly, and she looks amazing in this. She does. She looks fantastic. But that moment. Yeah, it's That moment up. was really, really disturbing. <laughs> I do feel like maybe she has one of the weaker performances in this, but not necessarily, I think, because of anything she's done. It's just that the material she's given to work with is not necessarily that compelling. It's very two-dimensional. It Like, she is the ambitious ex-wife. That's kind of her character description. Yeah. Oh, and that actually, that sorry, this does bring me back to something about Hugo real fast, is I actually do really enjoy his kind of character arc because one of the things that he realizes too late is that there is no path is like actually no it's also part of Chirin's realization I'm, I might be mixing them up now um is that there is no path to the city 
is that it's always a con. It reminds me a little bit of like what we were talking about in moments. They have a bit. They both have a bit of it. But it reminds me a little bit of like remember I was talking about the Millennial Death Squad in uh, Yes Polar. Yes. Is this idea of you're participating in a system that will destroy you, and you're kind of realizing it just a second too late. Yeah. No, I really like that as a theme too. Yeah. And I think the last thing that I really want to talk about is structurally how this this has a... I think that they did the best job that they could with this because this movie is not getting a sequel, not with the numbers it's making. And that's tragic because I want to see a sequel, but also I feel like they were aware of it because they've given us a cliffhanger that is still, I think, as much as it can be emotionally satisfying as a standalone film. Because the character arc... At least so far as we've seen, and I'm aware it's a longer manga, there might be more arcs that I'm not aware of. I'm not going to comment on those. But within what we've seen, her arc, her war against uh, Nero, is basically done. The rest is execution. What they end on is a promise that she will get him. And whether there's another series of trials and tribulations to get there, I think is kind of irrelevant to the fact that they chose a very good moment and the kind of pointing of the sword and the declaration of intent, I think works. And I really just wish he'd kept the fucking sunglasses on. I think that's fair. I think that's very, very fair. And I also agree. I think this is a great beat to end on in terms of Alita's story arc. I am kind of saddened that this is not going to get a sequel, but... What was there was really enjoyable. Like, I enjoyed this a lot. Almost, I'd say, actually, the same amount as I enjoyed Mortal Engines um, when we watched that. I've just really appreciated seeing projects like this in theaters that aren't necessarily attached to um, properties that are already out there. Like, they aren't a sequel of something. It's it's an original franchise um, that's coming from, you know, like a specific set of books or or mangas so i just kind of wish we could see more than that um yeah. or excuse I, me i more do stuff think like that this. is one of the things i appreciate is it does feel complete and i'm disappointed that we're not going to see more but at the same time it works and i think for a lot of films like this it's all about the sequel stinger it's all about setting up a franchise and in a way this does kind of feel like the best possible version of a B-movie. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Because, like, it, it's not so much plot as it is action as segment of plot. Like, you do have a literal, you know, you know murder sport tournament. And so, in having that, like, you kind of give up any pretense of trying to craft this story for being, like, you know this wider like metaphor or allegory is it's like this is this is a comic book this is a manga this is action sequence one action sequence two action sequence three action sequence four um it does it feels less like a cohesive thesis and more like this really fun ride and there is a cohesive thesis it's just not presented i think in the way that we traditionally think of in you know feature storytelling yeah i think that's a great Great note to end on. Yeah, absolutely. This has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Jess Whitmore. You guys can follow me on Twitter at QuasiNim and also on Twitch.tv where five days a week I stream video games and talk about ethics and other bullshit. Um, (laughs) Annie, where can people find you? People can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at at lights and music that's lights en music you can come and visit me and see some of the articles i'm retweeting and i also take photos of my dog and my travels his name is oscar and he's the best he's such a good boy (laughs) most of the time anyways as always you guys can follow us on twitter at movie more cast on facebook at movie more podcast um feel free to retweet engage yell at us whatever it is just we love hearing from you guys um, our intro music, as always, is Trouble by Ipso Factopus. You can find a link to their band camp down below. And uh, we just want to thank you guys. And if you want to support the podcast, um, first of all, tell your friends. That's the biggest thing is we want to spread out. We want more people to engage in this conversation. And also, you're already helping. Like, being here, you're part of this. And we're thankful every fucking day for it. 
Um, the other thing you can do is if you want to go a step further and help us keep the lights on, let me tell you, my life is collapsing and I am not too proud to beg, is we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash quasinim, which helps keep us, you know, in movie tickets and celluloid and server space and all that good jazz. It but keeps regardless, the lights on. Oh, yeah. And we also have bonus episodes. We've done one on Iron Man. We got one on A James Cameron's Avatar coming up. So if you like your CGI, this is kind of your thing. And, you know, we're going to have more of those. There's going to be exclusive, and it's just going to be a fun time for everyone. So thank you guys so much. We love you all. Have a good night, day, whatever time you're listening to. And, you know, have a good one. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.